Yeah, well, welcome back, James. We're probably more than halfway through now. Um, I think this series is going to be 11 in total. This is episode 8, or chunk 8. And we're at last, in the second half of the book, we're in chapter 4 of James. And it's me again. Surprise, surprise. Um, we've been going, bouncing back. Matt, me, Matt, me. I guess there was some sort of scheduling reason why um, all those years ago I had to preach back to back. So we're in James chapter 4 today, verses 1 to 12, and the title is This Means War. And once again, we're looking at the, the distance, the gap that exists between our proclamation of faith and how that works out in our lives, our practice of faith. Um, I hope this blesses you. And I hope this helps you to follow Christ and live for Christ where you are. Amen. Okay, quick quiz, little game to kick us off. Um, up on the screen above me is going to come the names of some slightly odd sounding wars. And I want you to tell me whether you think that they were real wars or made up wars. Okay, so the first one, the Boer War, right. Not to be confused with the wild boar of Ammonford war, okay? Spelled slightly different, pronounced similarly. Is that a real war? Is that a false war? It's a real war. Yeah, of course, we all know there's a tick. We all know about the Boer War. Um, conflict at the end of the 19th century, start of the 20th century between the British Empire and other settlers in South Africa. That's an easy one. Okay, but uh, maybe not the wild boar, but what about this one? The pig war. The pig war. Hands up who thinks the pig war is a real war. Oh, there's only a few brave souls. Hands up who doesn't think it's a, it's a war. Yeah, okay. And lots of you sitting on the fence. Well, correct. It was a war. It was a confrontation in 1859 between the American and British authorities over the boundary between the United States and British-controlled North America, i.e. Canada. And it was called the Pig War because it was triggered, this was like the flashpoint, by somebody's pig being shot. It's also called the Pig Episode, the Pig and Potato War. I don't know whether the potato, a pig was shot with a potato gun, I don't know. Um, interestingly, about this funny named war, the pig was the only casualty. So it's, it's appropriate that it's called the uh, Pig War. Okay, how about this next one? The gr- Is that how you spell Gravy. Are supposed to say gravy. <laughs> Hands up who thinks the gravy war is a real war. Oh, Jamie. I was gutted then. I thought I hadn't got anybody. But I got one. Thanks, mate. Thanks for trying. <laughs> of course it's, course it's not. Don't be daft. How about the next one? The football war? Do we think the football war is? Every week, well, yes, I tell you what, it is It is like going into battle sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, there was a five-day conflict between Honduras and El Salvador. There was kind of political hostilities before a football match, a qualifying game for the 1970 World Cup. And it was a fiery, ill-tempered match. And that spilled over into the fans, which spilled over into an actual conflict between the two countries. Okay, how about this last one? My favourite name, do you think the War of the Whiskers... Is a real name for a war or not? Hands up who thinks a war of a whis- the whiskers is a real war. Okay. Yes, yeah, what we call the war between cat food companies. No. It's, 
Let's have a look. Yes, it was a real war. This was actually the name given to three centuries of conflict between England and France. Supposedly, King Louis VII got a taste for beards, and who can blame him, really? And his wife didn't like it. He wouldn't shave it off. She annulled the marriage, drove over. No, she didn't. She uh, sailed over to England. She got married to Henry II, and there, were, there was lots of fighting that, that lasted just over three centuries. Now, that's just a bit of silliness um, to kind of get us thinking about the fact that, actually, wars are everywhere. We, we can have wars over sensible things, and we can have wars about silly things as well. Um, as long as there have been peace treaties and peace summits, there have been wars against nation against nation. People just have this ability somehow to upset one another to such an extent that war breaks out. But it's not just wars against countries, is it? We've got different kinds of war. We use that phrase in our, in our culture in many different ways. Um, I remember business studies, GCSE, hearing about the cola wars. They were exciting. Do you remember in the 90s? Pepsi spent a shed load of money advertising, trying to win market superiority off of Coca-Cola. And there was a couple of years where the two companies spent literally billions of pounds. And because they both spent the money, they kind of cancelled each other out. And the market share didn't change one single bit in the end. And they called that the Cola Wars. Do you remember the supermarket wars? My, my only, I suppose they go on constantly, don't they? But I, I've got this distinct memory of there being some kind of war between supermarkets where they were trying to be the people who could sell the cheapest baked beans. Does anybody remember that? When baked beans ended up being like four or five pence a tin, but you were only allowed to buy three of them or something. You have supermarket wars. And actually, it's not unusual, as Peter suggested there, when we, and I mentioned football, that we use that imagery of war and that terminology of war when we're speaking about sporting events. You can imagine, can't you, the BBC's advertising for the Six Nations going something like six feuding nations coming head to head. There can only be one victor and that sort of thing. You know, pitting the, all the different teams as uh, enemies battling in a war. And as we enter the second half of the book of James, as we enter chapter four, we're faced with this idea of war again when James speaks about conflicts and fights. And the, and the word there, fights, is, is literally to go to war. Um, and what we see when we read James chapter 4 is actually that he wants to speak about three different types of war. Three different types of war. Um, so we're going to look at those and... Um, uh, and, and see what we can learn from it. Okay, so this is the first um, war that we find, and it's the war that we fight against ourselves. Um, that's the reality, isn't it? That's the reality, as we've seen, um, looking at these wars up on, up on the screen and, and thinking about different ways that people kind of do battle with one another. People just quarrel. People just fight. You get on people's nerves and people get on your nerves. And it was no difference back in the day. That's why we read verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes wars and conflict among you? He's not just speaking in, to, the, to the general world and the population. And we can go, oh, isn't it, isn't it terrible that in this country, in that country, people are doing awful things to each other. His audience here, the people who he's asking this question of, about conflicts, about fighting, about quarrels, is the church. It's people he calls repeatedly 
brothers and sisters. He asks the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? When we think about fighting, when we think about quarreling, when we think about wars, probably, and possibly rightly, we think, well, how unchristian. Surely, the Christian thing, just as Jesus promised and prayed, is that people would know the church, they would know his people by the love that they have for one another, not by the quarrels that go on. Didn't he say that? This is how they know you. The world will know you, the love that you have for one another. How about the words of the psalmist, Psalm 133, verse 1? How good and how pleasant it is when God's people live together in fights and quarrels. No, in unity, in harmony. And it is good, isn't it? It is wonderful when there's, when there's peace, when there's love, when there's humility, when there's care, when there's grace, when there's compassion. It's a wonderful witness. That's what Jesus said, that people would see that and they would know that we are his people. Yet the reality for James, the reality for us, the reality in so many of the churches of the New Testament that we get a glimpse in through the letters is that People quarrel. Even Christians quarrel. Didn't the disciples quarrel? Didn't they have a go at one another and jostle and and fight for position alongside Jesus? I mean, just think of some of the things that Paul writes to the churches in the New Testament. People's personalities competing, tribalism developing and so on. I mean, the phrase that jumps out of me that just says this can happen even amongst God's, God's people is in Galatians. When Paul says, be careful not to bite and devour one another. Just think of that language and that, that imagery. God's people who are supposed to love one another, care for one another. He's warning, do you know what? You might end up biting and devouring one another. And James's epistle, if you've been going through with it, with us, is, is just littered of examples of how people are fighting within the church. There's class wars that we read in chapter two, you know, where favoritism is being shown. Uh, the higher ups in society are being helped. The lower downs are being ignored. In chapter five, we're going to read about employment wars where people who are employing other people aren't paying them a fair wage and that's causing problem. There's doctrinal wars going on. That's been hinted at in chapter one and again in chapter three, where people coming to the word of God, instead of using it as an opportunity to encourage, to build up, to learn more about God, to edit one another they're jo- using it to jostle for position and authority and respect and simplest of all there's just the interpersonal wars isn't there there's people there's saints there's christians who are speaking evil of one another gossiping slandering using their words to tear one another down the, the description or, or, or what he's teaching against you should should cause us to mourn in many senses shouldn't it we should come to this kind of passage and say, oh, James, why do you even need to tell the church that? That's awful. Surely people who, who are Christians shouldn't act like that. But this is the fruit of their gospel. Division. War. I mean, the world looks at the church and it might not articulate it quite as clearly as that. But that's what people see. That's what people think. They ignore the message we preach because they look at the fruit and they say, Not up to much, is it? Rotten at the core. Rotten at the core. Yet it shouldn't be. This is what Jesus is praying for in John 17. For unity of all believers, for their witness and for the testimony of him. 
So what's going wrong then? Why is it that there are these wars between people, between nations, between brothers and sisters in God's church? Well, I think to answer that, we need to look at the second kind of war that he speaks about. He speaks about the war, the interpersonal war um, between you and me. But he speaks as well, the second kind of war, the war within ourselves. He provides the answer as to why we fight with each other. In verse 1, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The war with one another is the direct fruit of the war that's taking place in all of our hearts. It's almost like, imagine this now, Jesus knew what he was speaking about when he said what comes out of your heart. Yeah, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Our desires, says James, our wants, our, our lusts, our passions, our motives, they're a battleground within us. Uh, and there's a fight, there's a war going on within. I mean, he summed it up in chapter 3, didn't he? And he calls the foolish, the unwise. He says that person's heart is full of bitter envy and selfish ambition. Selfishness. Me-centeredness. That's the crux of it. The battle that's going on within that causes battles without is my selfishness. My selfishness which spills over into wars with other people. Think about it like this. If I'm the center of my universe, there's no room for you. If you're the center of your universe, there's no room for me. It follows then, even if we are Christians... That in our weaker moments, when our primary objective in our lives is to satisfy our own wants, our own selfish needs, our own desires, is that we're going to live in such a way that we put other people down. We chase those things even to the detriment of those that we've been called to love our brothers and sisters. Let's not be mistaken here. These selfish desires and these um, ambitions that we sometimes think, oh, well, you know, they're all right, isn't it? It doesn't hurt anybody. It doesn't harm anybody. They bring death. Verse 2. You desire to, to have. You desire, but you do not have. So what? So you kill. So you kill. Now, for some of us, we can say, well, I've never killed anybody. I've never killed anybody, literally. We do see it in the world where it spills over to that extent. The pig wars. You know, selfish desires, not having. It spoils over into killing. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. We kill one another in our minds with anger and hatred. Spills over. We go to war because we can't get the things that we want. Because when we put ourselves in the center of the universe, worlds start to collide. He says about coveting, it's not just about when you can't have, but when we're living self-centered lives, we see other people having and we want. We just want them maybe not to have. We don't want them to have more. And we'll kill for it, he says. We'll quarrel, we'll fight, we'll go to war. And notice how this selfishness has a, an appearance of spirituality as well. Sometimes we can be spiritual, inverted commas, but still being very selfish. He says, he says about us praying and not having. You know, we can actually have this attitude where we say, well, I've prayed for it. I've, I've left it with God. This is what I want. And, and, I, and I've kind of taken it to the Lord. And he says, yeah, but underneath that is 
is rottenness, is no good. It's, 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 it's unwisdom, it's foolishness, it's selfishness that leads to death. I prayed about it. I pray all the time. If God wants me to ha- be happy, then maybe he should just say yes more often than he does. Do you know what? When our hearts are at war within us, when our prayers are selfish prayers, they're, they're sketchy prayers at best. They're selfish prayers. We pray things that, that sound, don't, they don't sound like hallowed be your name, your kingdom done, your will be done. They sound, sound like my needs first, my desires second, my time scale be stuck to. That's what our prayers sound like. And we wonder why God doesn't answer our prayers because inside, inside we're at war with ourselves and these selfish ambitions, these selfish uh, um, desires are, are spilling out. But why is that? Why is there a war within our own hearts? Well, actually, just as we need to look at the war beneath the first war, we need to look at the war beneath the second war that explains why we have this battle going on within. And the final war that James picks up on is the most fundamental of all. And it's the war between us and God. And now, now when we look at this, when we read verse 4, we get, we get to the place where the rubber really hits the road. The war with one another is a war there because we're at war with ourselves. And we're at war with ourselves because first and foremost, we're at war with God. Verse 4, he says this, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And this is the big problem, isn't it? This is the big problem of the entire Bible, the big problem of all of human history. It's once upon a time, there was peace. There was peace between mankind and God. There was peace within mankind's heart. There was peace between Adam and Eve. God was there and he was dwelling with mankind in the garden and everything was perfect. And then what happened? Rebellion, sin, you could say a declaration of war, couldn't you? God's created children choosing something other than him and in an instant making an enemy. In an instant taking a father and making him an enemy. Uh, James describes it like this, doesn't he? He says, friendship with the world. And I suppose we've got to kind of go back again and think, what does he mean there when he's speaking about the world? He's not just speaking about material things as if the world around us is necessarily bad and we need to be freed from the physical and move on to the spiritual. No, this is his shorthand again for saying the world is any kind of life that is this and no more. Any kind of life essentially that the devil would be happy to come along with and go, yeah, that's all right. Any life that cuts out God, anything which removes our creator, our savior, our sustainer from the picture. It's worth restating that. He's saying that when we befriend the world, we're rejecting God. That's what he's saying. We're saying we're living in this place where it's totally devoid of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so James concludes, well, if you're a friend of the world, that kind of world where God is nothing, you've cut God out of the picture, then you are an enemy of God. You've declared all out war on him. You've tried to erase him from history. And it's this picture, I think, still of of who's at the center of the universe. Because the truth is, the true picture is that God is at the center of the universe. 
He created all things. He governs and rules all things. All things are for him. And yet, we want to be at the center of the universe. That's what the sin and the rebellion was all about. Dethroning Christ and enthroning ourselves. We are friends with the world, a place devoid of God, because we've kicked God out. We've gotten rid of him, and then we've taken that seat. And as a result, there's an internal battle, isn't there? You know, where the world and us um, and our desires are, are fighting because it's not how it should be, but it is, it is a present reality where everything is all about us. And then that spills into interpersonal wars because if you're the center of your universe and I'm the center of mine, then those two things can't coexist in the same space and time. So, boom, wars erupt, quarrels, fights. Do you see how it all just boils down to this, where we just reject God? where we take him out of the picture and everything else spirals out of control. When we live life as if God doesn't exist, as if the father didn't create us, as if he isn't in charge, as if he isn't ruling and railing. It's just chaos. It's just a mess. There's certainly no peace. There is definitely war. Now, some of you will be saying, okay, well, well yes, Sam, that's, that's fair enough. But we're Christians. We're Christians. That is somebody who has recognized that we shouldn't be at the center of the universe, that Jesus is, and so has uh, uh, repented, confessed, submitted themselves, and put Christ back on the throne. And that's, that's certainly true. But, but again, just look at the words he uses. He says, you adulterous people. Verse 8, you double-minded. This picture of us kind of flitting back between two um, scenarios or, or being wedded to God, that Old Testament description, being married to God, but also having this wandering eye looking out for something more. Even if we are Christians, this, this possibility, this temptation is there, is to have Christ at the center on the throne and then to start asking the question, well, what if? What if Jesus wasn't all it was all about, but I was, okay? So I'll take the salvation, I'll take the forgiveness, but life right now, I think it could be better if it was all about me. And we do, don't we? We slip into that. We think, yes, thank you for forgiveness. Yes, thank you for salvation. Yes, thank you that in heaven, I will be with you for eternity. But here and now, why not for the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years, why not get everything that I can for me? Putting Christ at the center is for eternity, for here and now today. Me at the center, us at the center is what's important. And so even for those of us who confessed Christ, James is warning us, you know what? This, this can happen. We can be people like Lot's wife who is fleeing, yet look back over their shoulder and wonder, what are we leaving behind? Could it be better back there? Can I get a better deal if I cut God out of the picture for now? Can I have a little bit more just for me if I erase Jesus from the picture again? Now, all of that is just to state the problem, isn't it? That's all just to make you feel bad, feel awful that, oh, do you know what? I don't live my life as if Jesus is the center of the universe. I don't live my life as if um, he's in control, that he's made me. I do put myself on the throne. I do ignore him. Um, yes, I've got this real problem. So what's the solution? Well, it's a simple solution. And he sums it up in three words. Verse 7, submit yourselves to God. Verse 8, come near to God. And verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Submit, draw near, humble. 
their three phrases that describe what it is that we're supposed to do. And I could go into the nuance. I think time is getting on. So instead, let's just let's just have a think. What's going on? What is James saying in some total that people like you and me, who are tempted to, to kick Jesus off the throne and reinstall ourselves, or people who have been living our entire lives as if we're the center of the universe, what's he saying in these three words? What's he saying in these three instructions? He's saying, get your act together. Be wise. Live out the truth. It doesn't matter where you think you've put Jesus. He's on his throne. He is on his throne. He is at the center of it all. The whole cosmos exists and revolves around him. That's the wisdom that James is sharing and he wants them to put into practice. Your part in all of this, he says, is to submit. Your part in all of this is to draw near the throne. Your part of all of this is not to lift yourself up, to elevate yourself up into thinking that you're more important than you really are, but is to humble yourself before the one who, who is in charge of it all. James is basically saying, isn't he, to the Christians, change your perspective. Get your perspective right. And the, the change of perspective that he's asking us to carry out is basically to look at the world as it truly, as it really is. So much of the problems that we have in our life is because we're living in lies, not living in the truth. When we live out the truth, everything does go right. Everything does go well. When we recognize who Jesus is and where he is, ruling and reigning, life goes so much better for us. He says, change your perspective. See the universe. See the world. See everything as it's supposed to be. Jesus at the center and you submitting, humbling yourself. And drawing near. Um, a couple of slides are going to come up now, which just illustrate this point of perspective of how when we're looking at things the wrong way, we don't we don't see them clearly, even though that's how they are. Um, this is uh, it's difficult to see because it's a difficult to see picture, but it's difficult to see because it's a bit dark as well. But this is from an installation done by a guy called Daniel Britton, and it's called dyslexia. He invented this font, which is supposed to help people to see what it's like for others who have got dyslexia and, and, and seeing and reading problems and things like that. So it caught my eye. I'm dyslexic, so it caught my eye. Um, and this is the installation where he had these pieces of perspex glass. And you can see that what's written doesn't make any sense at all because of our perspective. It doesn't make any sense at all. There's just lines, random lines. They don't make any sense. Go click to the next one, Alad. You see, it's starting to come more to the place where we're supposed to be looking at it. And you can start to see, actually... Maybe this is spelling out words. Maybe this is English text. Come one more. Imagine you're walking through the art gallery and you're kind of walking around. You can't read it. You can't read it. Ah, when your perspective is right, it all becomes clear. Is it clear? Can people read that? I'll read it to you. It says reading slower than normal. Dyslexia experience exhibition. The point, the point is that you can only read it and see it and understand it when your perspective is right. You can click off that now, Alan. You can turn the lights back on. That's fine. And, it, and, and the exact same thing is true with us and our lives and the war and the peace. We, we, we can only see and understand and live life properly when our perspective is right. When we're looking from a point of view where we're not at the center, but Jesus is at the center and we're facing and we're looking to him. We acknowledge with our words 
in our hearts and our minds and we follow through in our lives and the way that we live that Jesus is that Jesus is the one who gives all, who sustains all. He's the one who is worthy of all praise and adoration and submission. Then things line up. Then things look clear. Then, as James has promised in chapter 3, we find peace with God, in ourselves, with one another. That's a wonderful thing to be on offer, isn't it? Peace. Peace. Because so often we just don't experience it in any of those realms. We don't experience it. We can't have peace, he says, if Jesus is not at the center. Yet with Jesus at the center, that is the very thing that is available. That is the very thing that is present and real. I love the description. When we put Jesus at the center, our hands are cleansed. Our hearts are purified. And, and this is wonderful. Turn it for the books. When we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. We're exalted with him. Things just slot into place when we have the right perspective. When we put Jesus in the right place and we see that we are not the center. I mean, there's more that could be said, but uh, we're, we're getting on. So I'll leave you just with, with verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. He's not speaking about us. That one that he's speaking about isn't us. If we want war with God, if we want war with one another, we'll get it. And the sobering truth there that he's speaking is that we will lose. If we try and pit ourselves against God, we will lose. If we try and puff up our chests and walk through life with this kind of bravado that says, I am it, we'll lose. We'll be brought low. We'll be humbled. You may win the war with the person who's sitting next to you. You may win the war with the person you dislike at work. You may even win the war in your own heart and get all the desires of your selfish ambitions. You, you may. But there's one war we can't win. There's one war we won't win. And that's the war with God. If we're his enemies, then we've had it. Yet that same one who can destroy can save. In Jesus, in trusting in Jesus, we have a victor. We have a chance to switch back, if you like, to the winning side. To be born again. To not be an enemy. To be a child of God that we were first created to be. We have a chance to have peace with God. Not hostility, not fighting, not conflict, not quarrel. Peace. Peace with God and with ourselves and one another through Christ. Now, maybe you've never experienced that peace. Maybe you've never experienced any of those pieces before. If all you've known is war and fighting and strife and turmoil. James is just saying, oh, stop fighting. Look to Christ, find peace don't stop fighting first with one another. Don't stop fighting first within yourself. First of all, stop fighting with God. Stop living life as if he doesn't exist. Like he's not the one who's in control. Submit. Come near. Humble yourself. Admit that you're not everything. That the world doesn't resolve around you. Let Jesus get back to the center. Have that perspective and receive that peace. That's on offer. Perhaps you have had that peace. Perhaps you are a Christian and you thought, you know what, I am at peace with God, but like so many, your eye has wandered. You're part of that adulterous, double-minded tendency. 
asking, what would it be like if I had the forgiveness, but if I was at the center, if it was all about me? That's not the deal we've been offered. That's not the deal that's on the table. That's not what Christ came to give. Forgiveness at the absence of him ruling and reigning in our lives. Just sort your perspective out, brothers and sisters. Let's just remind ourselves today. Encourage one another in this fact. Jesus is at the center. Jesus is in control. Everything was created by him, through him, and for him. When our minds wonder, when our eyes wonder, when he is nothing and we are everything, war. Stop window shopping. Let's start wondering. No, let's stop wondering. And let's start living in that truth that peace is available only through Christ.